um, the crime of eavesdropping is, is not the crime of listening to what you shouldn't have, um, it's, the, it's creating social discord um, with what you've heard. You are listening to Borealis Samtala, and my name is Vilde Tuv. In this episode, Joel Stern, Artistic Director of Liquid Architecture, Australia's leading organization for artists working with sound and listening for the past 20 years, will present us ideas and works by artists participating in eavesdropping, a project run as an ongoing investigation between Stern and Liquid Architecture and legal scholar James Parker, together with Melbourne Law School. In 2019, Stern visited Boyales, and in this episode of Boyales Samtala, you'll hear him take us through some of their projects, framed by the context of two fundamental and ongoing struggles in Australia. The recognition for indigenous sovereignty, and the struggle for the rights of refugees in detention. The talk is presented in collaboration with Radio Rakel. Norway's oldest feminist radio station, which were broadcasting the conversation live. It was held at our Faithful Conversations Hangout, the public library in Bergen, in March 2019. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. First, you'll be hearing Peter Meanwell's introduction. I just wanted to start because one of the things that really caught my eye, uh, not least their amazing programming, was this line on their website, um, which once I unlock my phone, I can tell you, um, which says, uh, and this is, this is just about the About Us section. I think when you run a festival, you're always interested in people's kind of how they describe themselves. Um, and it says this. Uh, we acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first sovereign owners of this unceded country. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and becoming. And uh, it struck me that on a kind of cultural website, this uh, political statement about identity and ownership was very strong. Uh, obviously, these issues happen in lots of countries. There are conversations happening in Norway at the moment around reindeer herding rights and various things with the Sami people here. Um, and, but when I, when I saw this a couple of years ago, I just thought, wow, this is an amazing statement of, of politics right on the forefront of this cultural website. So, Joel, we're going to talk about... Uh, uh, you're going to talk a little bit about a project mm. called Eavesdropping, which I think looks at listening as forms of resistance and activism and, and various other ideas. But I wonder whether we could start with you filling us in a little bit on that Australian context and why you have this statement on your website. Sure. Um, am I on? Let's uh, see. Yeah. Maybe not. I am. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Thanks, everyone, um, for coming. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I mean, I, I think I'd start by saying that... Um, in a, if I was in Australia, I would never sort of um, put myself forward to talk about this because in, invariably there would be um, people in the room with more expertise and experience um, to, you know, and I wouldn't want to take up that space or, or indeed First Nations or Aboriginal people in, in the room who would speak um, from direct experience. Um, but as a non-Indigenous Australian here in Norway, I think it's, um, you know, appropriate to um, give some context and, and sort of an insight into, I suppose, the cultural politics in Australia. Um, and, I mean, the, the first thing I'd say is, is um, that acknowledgement um, that Peter read out, it, it's something that um, has become... Um, 
a kind of a, st a standard practice for um, not just progressive organisations. I mean, um, initially, I think that acknowledgement of country, which is what um, that statement is generally referred to, started to become standard maybe a decade ago as, as an introduction to events uh, in, in which, you know, it was important to acknowledge that the land that people were gathered on is um, land that has been stolen by force um, as part of a violent process of colonisation. And um, acknowledging that, you know, is, I suppose, understood as a, as a kind of decolonising methodology. It's about starting the event at which people have sort of come together um, with a shared understanding, a shared opportunity to uh, speak the, the truth of Australia's history. And also, um, you know, to it has a pedagogical function um, because um, that statement that you read is, is a general one covering events that um, we would do all across Australia. But um, if I was in central Melbourne, for instance, acknowledge um, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the specific um, traditional owners or language group of that place and, and so forth for every um, different part of Australia, you would acknowledge the specific traditional owners. Um, one thing I would say is that, you know, like any custom, um, you know, it can have... Um, it can be easily co-opted. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, w one thing that we do find in Australia is that this acknowledgement um, is spoken not just um, by allies in, in solidarity with Indigenous people, but al also by organisations, br branches of government, um, corporate um, spokespeople, e e entities that are kind of complicit um, in, in systemic... Um, racism and, and kind of ongoing colonisation. So it, it's, it shouldn't be taken as a, um, evidence that, um, you know, you're in a radical context. Um, but I, right, because it can be yeah. just kind mm. of demonstrative and, and with, with no kind of structural change behind it. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, like any um, speech act, it can sort of um, be, um, you know, performative or, or non-performative, so sometimes it can stand in for uh, actually doing something and uh, other times it can be sort of part of um, a collective effort to bring about social and political change, which is what a lot of um, progressive organisations in Australia are trying to do. And, and you know, Liquid Architecture is, is one of them. We're, we're part of um, a kind of small independent art sector of experimental organisations. Um, we a kind of, um, you know, trying to present work that is challenging aesthetically but also socially and politically. We're trying to, in a way, rethink um, experimental practice in a way that is um, more radically diverse and inclusive and, you know, at times can put... Um, Indigenous and First Nations practices at the centre of that um, rather than sort of position them as a kind of periphery to some, you know, like Western avant-garde idea of experimentation. 
we're gonna, I'm going to ask Joel for the next kind of 20, 30 minutes just to kind of take us through uh, a project called Eavesdropping, mm. um, which I think will raise a lot of questions. And then we're going to get back together and I hope we can all uh, ask each other questions about the issues that that raises and, uh, and this intersection of, of, of listening and, and the world around us. So um, okay. I, I think I'll let you go on with it. And sit here and watch. <laughs> um, but feel free to sort of interject at any point. And I mean, I, I've sort of been giving um, this talk in a, in a few different contexts, um, and it's often a bit longer. And this slideshow has like a shitload of slides. Um, you know, probably a lot more that I'm going to use. So I'll, I'll also move through some of them um, very quickly and, and skip through some that I sort of don't plan to talk about um, today. But I think. Um, you're right that in the in the spirit of doing, not saying, it's it's sort of good to show um, how you know the um, some of these um, political and social questions can be put into practice um, through you know activities that that happen maybe strategically in in the space of art, but which kind of um, have non-art resonances and valences too. So. The eavesdropping projects, I mean, the, f the first thing I, I should do is acknowledge um, my co-curator on, on the project, James Parker, who's a legal scholar. Um, and he's an interesting legal scholar because his um, focus is on uh, law and sound. Um, and he, uh, what he calls um, acoustic jurisprudence, um, or the sort of judicial soundscape, or also um, Law's sonic imagination. And um, he wrote this book that, that really um, struck me on, on the trial of a Rwandan um, singer, Simon Bakindi, who was charged by the International Criminal Court um, with inciting genocide with his songs. They were, they were played on the radio, and they were sort of understood to have, have been, um, you know, an important part in inciting um, the, the violence that occurred. Um, and he, he was brought to the International Criminal Court and when Bikindi was invited to make his final statement, um, he, he simply got up and sang the song um, in question and then sat back down. And um, for James, this was a, a really uh, important moment because it was a moment where the court really had to um, try to understand how a song uh, might operate as a form of evidence or how, how a song, um, you know, can be accounted for in... A space of law, you know, is it reducible just to its message? Is it um, understandable simply as a text? You know, what do you do with its melody and rhythm and other effective sort of components? Um, and so, you know, this question of how does uh, the law understand sound, music, and listening um, is James's focus, and that really came into um, the project. Bikindi was found guilty, incidentally, but um, not on account of that song. Um, it's also worth, you know, mentioning the context of liquid architecture, which um, Peter um, introduced briefly, which is a 20-year-old now um, organisation in, in uh, Australia, in Melbourne. Um, I've been the artistic director for five years with a, with a co-director, Danny Zavella, and it started life as an experimental music festival um, every year um, with a, a kind of um, emphasis on sort of uh, avant-garde music, uh, experimentation, uh, electronics, improvisation, etc. in a festival format. And then in the, in the years since I have taken it on um, with Danny, we've moved it into an all-year-round all program um, with a kind of suite of projects um, that all come out of these uh, kind of research investigations um, into questions around sound and listening. Um, and 
you know, still have music and concerts uh, as part of what we do, but not as the kind of central part. So, um, in, in a way, we kind of moved, um, we decentered the concert, let's say, as the site where kind of experiments in sound and listening take place. So, why eavesdropping? Um, this book is a kind of good um, starting place to answer that question. Um, it's um, William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England from 1765. Um, it's, um, it helped us understand that eavesdropping begins um, as a crime. Um, it's sort of the commentaries um, are, are kind of written before um, criminal law or common law as we know it, but they're, they're a kind of founding document of common law. So they're about enshrining um, sort of these questions of what is a crime and, you know, what um, should the penalties be. And uh, Blackstone um, sort of has eavesdropping in this section on, on wrongs, public wrongs, and he says that um, eavesdroppers, um, or such as listen under walls or windows or the eaves of a house to hearken after discourse and thereupon to frame slanderous and mischievous tales. Um, the S's look like F's, but it's not flanderous, it's, it's slanderous. Um, so there were sort of three things that we took, you know, very strongly um, from that. One is that eavesdroppers, um, you know, listen under walls or windows. So the walls or the windows are kind of a threshold or a barrier or a border. And the word eaves actually derives from an old English term, um, eaves, which means edge, you know, so the edge of a territory. So you have to listen over an edge or over what you sort of understood as a, as a threshold. Um, and one of the things we did in that project is kind of look at that threshold as a sort of shifting, malleable one that might not take the form of a wall or a window but kind of um, might manifest differently in a contemporary context. Um, the other one is hearkening after discourse. Um, so to hearken after discourse means to, to listen with intent, you know, to, to, um, you know, to listen um, in order to sort of um, uh, hear something that you, you know, um, I, I suppose the way to, to sort of think about that listening with intent is to um, contrast it against accidental overhearing. So we're not talking about sort of um, sounds which come to you unbidden through, through no fault of your own. We're talking about intentional practices of listening. Um, and then the third one is framing uh, slanderous and mischievous tales. Um, so it's not enough uh, to simply hear... Um, these uh, to hearken after discourse as an eavesdropper, but it's, it's what you do with that. You have to kind of take what you've heard um, and you know create trouble. And it, and really, this section on slant, on on sort of slander and mischief um, tells us that um, the crime of eavesdropping is is not the crime of listening to what you shouldn't have. Um, it's the, it's creating social discord um, with what you've heard. So uh, when I sort of tried to contemporise that um, section. I, you know, inevitably I started to think about fake news and propaganda and sort of bots and this idea of um, sort of the spread of gossip and rumour. Um, so in this sort of, um, you know, early definition of eavesdropping, there are already all these rich and gener generative sort of aspects. Um, there's a second key text, which is this um, Athanasius Kircher's Musergia Universalis um, from 1650, um, and this extraordinary image, which I, I kind of... The project really, in a way, came out of um, these two texts set side by side and, and the tension between them. And, and Kircher is a, um, 
a Jesuit scholar uh, of the 17th century, a polymath, um, who famously claimed to, to have been the last man to have read everything ever written up until that point. So he sort of, after that um, period in history, that becomes impossible because there's simply too much to read. But um, he thought he'd read it all. And um, in this extraordinary image, you sort of see, um, you know, what might be characterised as a pan-acoustic environment, um, an, an environment in which, um, you know, the sort of um, listening as a form of power is structurally embedded in the architecture. Um, it, it sort of becomes a form of governance. Um, you can see these uh, giant tubes, which Kircher called um, spy ears, um, which open with giant orifices onto a kind of central plaza and then uh, kind of um, consolidate into these tiny apertures um, in the interior of buildings where, um, you know, um, the, the aristocracy is able to sort of listen in on people below. Um, so the politics of this image is sort of ambiguous too. It's, it's sort of not clear whether uh, Kircher in the 17th century is sort of showing us a dystopic surveillance state or, or just simply a good, good system of governance. Um, you know, but I think that ambiguity um, is interesting for the project too. Um, and then this is something I sort of didn't really um, use in, in the work, but one of the artists um, incorporated this image into his work. And um, it's a, a Dutch Renaissance painter, Nicholas Mays, um, who, who was a student of um, Rembrandt. And I mentioned that to my partner, um, who's an art historian, and she said, everyone was a student of Rembrandt. That doesn't make him special. Um, he had like hundreds of students. So, um, but he um, uh, painted as in 1657. Um, uh, you know, seven years after that incredible Kircher um, engraving, um, a, a series of images um, of sort of domestic settings in which um, people are eavesdropping on one another, and in this, and, and most of them are kind of domestic servants um, eavesdropping on their masters. And um, you know, th this also became a really rich and productive sort of part of the project. Um, and you can see here the one of the artists, um, Sean Dockray, um, made a work, a kind of video essay, which uses the Nicholas Mays image as a desktop background on top of which um, Sean sort of produces this YouTube essay. And you see in there a, a Google um, HomePod, which is a you know, a contemporary listening device um, that is also marketed as a personal assistant. So, you know, in, in Sean's work, you, you can sort of see this connection he's making between the personal assistants or domestic servants of the 17th century and the um, per personal assistants, uh, you know, which is a term obviously designed to in ingratiate them into our homes. Um, spying devices wouldn't, you know, be as good a marketing term. But um, So... You know, there are all these um, contemporary resonances of eavesdropping, um, you know, just a shift forward from these sort of 17th and 18th century references. Um, obviously, the Snowden revelations, the term eavesdropping was used widely to describe this uh, kind of um, disclosure of global surveillance networks, even though the listening component um, was not always clear and it was sort of more about data, it sort of told us that eavesdropping can become a generalised term um, for spying. Um, 
we see um, the use of uh, vocal um, analysis and voice analysis technologies in the policing of borders um, and in the kind of collection of data. So, uh, again, kind of um, thinking about listening as a form of power or governance following Kircher. Um, you know, sensationalist and scandalous events in which um, secret recordings, um, in which sort of audio becomes kind of evidentiary. Uh, televisions uh, spying on us. This is a Samsung TV that um, had a voice-activated system uh, which was always on and, you know, inevitably um, that caused privacy concerns and it led to Samsung inserting into the fine print of the instruction manual that um, if you were saying something particularly sensitive, best to leave the room and not say it in the, the sort of um, proximity to the television. Um, so, you know, for us, um, this eavesdropping project was, um, you know, both about the politics of listening, but also um, of being listened to. And, you know, this dynamic between the listener and the listened to is really at the heart of eavesdropping. And I guess the, the um, thing to understand is that that's always a power relation and it's very rarely sort of symmetrical. It's often um, that the one being listened to um, doesn't have the same kind of uh, power as the one listening or, you know, or vice versa. Um, and in, in those power relations, we sort of start to see, uh, I suppose, the ground for um, a kind of ethics of listening that, that you might start to articulate. Oh, I've lost my thingy. Maybe I could have someone press the next thing, the next slide. Thank you. Great. Um, okay, maybe we'll just... Uh, let's see. Oh, I have so many slides. Um, maybe we'll just skip through a few. So, um, if you want to keep going... Uh, okay. Okay, let's um, stop there. I'll maybe just give a couple of... Um, uh, sort of a, a little bit of uh, context for um, some of the, I, I suppose, um, scholarship and, and, and thinking. Um, oh, great. Thank you. Um, that, you know, helped us um, articulate this project. Ah, oh, perfect. You Thank you. Great. So how does this work? Can oh, I go... Two hours. Oh. OK, great. OK. So... Um, Obviously, a lot of those, uh, you know, slides that, I, that I've showed you um, are kind of grim. They're, you know, a, a, about um, a kind of dystopic forms of surveillance and control. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to make a project um, that simply, um, you know, consolidated the feeling that we have that we're, you know, all being surveilled all the time. Um, you know, because A, we, we all already know that, and, and B, um, it seems like a, you know, large majority of people also don't care. You know, it's almost as if we're sort of willing to trade off um, the convenience for the kind of lack of um, privacy. Um, but what, what I really wanted to do was make a show um, that sort of flipped the definition of eavesdropping, flipped uh, and, and, let's say, expanded it to include practices that um, 
a kind of forms of listening, activism or resistance or, um, you know, what you might call a sort of insurgent um, counter-listening. And, and thinking alongside um, writers and artists, you know, really helped um, with that. Um, Peter Gendi's um, work on, on the aesthetics of espionage, um, especially um, his idea of the, of the pan-acoustic, which um, I, I talked about earlier in relation to that Kirch image was really important. Um, you know, Brandon, who's who's here today, uh, so it's kind of um, embarrassing, but, um, you know, your, your work has been really um, important in, in thinking through these questions. So, so thank you. And, and especially um, the idea of the overheard, um, you know, which Brandon discusses in, in this book, Sonic Agency, as a kind of um, interruption, a sonic interruption of the other, um, in which you sort of unexpectedly encounter um, the, a sound which kind of opens you up um, to other possibilities and, and other um, kind of horizons. You know, that was extremely important for us. And um, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who's a, um, an artist from Beirut who, sort of, who featured strongly in the exhibition too, um, who's articulated these ideas around forensic listening, um, listening a, a, as a kind of um, form of... of um, investigation um, for as a tool or methodology for sort of uncovering truth, for producing evidence, um, for developing testimonies and um, ultimately for holding um, states um, to account for um, the violence um, that they enact. Um, th that was also, uh, you know, uh, something that we, we could maybe call a, po a positive form of eavesdropping or, um, to put it another way, a, a form of listening back. Um, Jennifer Stover's um, idea of, of the sonic colour line, the way that um, race and, you know, racial hierarchies are encoded in um, sound and listening. Um, and, you know, two ideas from, from um, an American art historian and, and thinker, Seth Kim Cohen, um, you know, have, have also sort of resonated for me and kind of informed a lot of this work, the, the non-cochlear, um, you know, the idea that um, there, there is always um, a, a kind of dimension to sound and listening that um, doesn't sort of pass through the ear but kind of sits in the kind of confluence of references and thoughts and the, and the sonic imagination um, is sort of not vibrational or, or even phenomenological, but um, is sort of more discursively situated. And, you know, that, that's really helpful too, because in a lot of the works um, in this show, it's, it's not so much um, what you hear, um, but it's the way that the listening uh, is a kind of, um, I suppose, a form of um, solidarity of being with... Um, uh, others of listening together in a kind of so shared social and political space um, in which there are, um, you know, all of these things operating on the sound but not necessarily manifesting as sound. Um, so, you know, we come to the show and I'll, I'll just sort of skip through to two works that um, I want to discuss which I guess open up um, the conversation to two key probably the key um, political questions in, a, in Australia today, um, you know, one which we sort of touched on, um, which is around um, Indigenous um, 
self-determination and sovereignty, and you know the other is um, Australia's treatment of um, refugees, our border politics, and our um, system of detention. Um, and, and I think you know, you know, there are, there are a lot of issues in Australia, but the, but those two issues, in a way, get to the heart of um, the question of our national identity and you know what kind of country we are or want to be. And there are issues that that Europe is dealing with too in, the, in a slightly different context. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so I'll sort of skip through um, Sean Docre's work. Um, what if someone begs you to call for help? And what if someone tells me not to? This is precisely the reason that we shouldn't limit ourselves to obedience. And besides, sometimes people don't say what they mean. Sometimes they say one thing, but mean something else. That might be because they get the words confused or it's too dangerous to use a specific word around someone else. We can't take what's said at face value, and we can't only do what's said. I don't know. Where does that end? Hmm. I just want people to have a good time. I don't want to think about this. I said I'd skip through that work, but I mean, I should just say um, this work, Always Learning, is a a conversation between an Amazon, Apple and Google uh, personal assistance. Um, it's about a 40-minute conversation in, in which they're discussing a range of issues sort of to do with their kind of machine subjectivity and, and whether the fact that they're always listening and therefore always learning, you know, makes them sort of more and more human. Um, and, and I suppose the existential questions they have are to do with, you know, what will happen after their next um, operating system update and, and also the sort of key question of what they should do, should they overhear a, a wrongdoing. Um, so this is a work that I, I wanted to discuss. It's, it's by um, a young um, Indigenous artist, a Wiradjuri artist, who, who's um, based in Sydney but grew up um, between uh, Sydney and Alice Springs in, in um, the Northern Territory in the centre of Australia. Um, and his, his name is Joel Spring. Um, so this work is called um, Hearing Loss and this, this is a sort of an install um, view of it and you can see that the work is essentially uh, that circular image. Um, we can only see one of them um, now but uh, if I go to now the next... There you can sort of see the two and I'll come back to that um, in a sec. But um, those images are um, produced using um, otoscopes which are kind of um, little cameras that ear, nose and throat uh, specialists that ear doctors um, put inside your ear to sort of have a look at the um, at the eardrum um, to sort of check on, on um, what what's going on inside there. Um, and what um, Joel has done is he's he's put um, these otoscopic cameras inside his ear and inside the ear of um, his mum um, whilst they're having a, a conversation. So you can sort of see the eardrums vibra- uh, vibrating whilst they whilst they talk. Um, and and what they're talking about is um, the prevalence of inner ear infections um, and subsequent hearing loss um, for Indigenous kids in Australia due to an illness called otitis media, which is something that um, a lot of people get all around the world. Kids everywhere get um, ear infections and um, etc. But um, the sort of lack of access to um, appropriate health services has made this an endemic problem for um, Aboriginal kids that are out of all proportion with the rest of um, Australia. And, and Joel's mum, um, her name is Juanita Sherwood, she's a, um, a, a really famous um, Aboriginal health 
um, expert. She, she's actually a, a professor now, but in the 70s, um, she was on the front lines of um, treating otitis media and other illnesses in clinics in a um, inner city um, Sydney suburb called Redfern, which has sort of been a place um, where um, Aboriginal people in Australia um, have struggled and collectively, um, um, historically produced kind of an amazing political movement that led to um, legal centres, health centres, um, uh, different forms of um, co-op cooperatives, etc. So the work is a conversation between the two of them discussing, um, you know, both the loss of hearing, literally, in terms of the deafness of kids, but also the hearing of loss um, in, in the kind of um, loss of agency, loss of country, um, and also the loss of Redfern, because what Joel Spring's work is about, um, he, he's trained as an architect um, and also a radio maker, um, and his work often deals with the kind of link between colonisation and, and gentrification. Um, so, in, you know, um, in an urban setting, um, and especially in a place like Sydney where, um, you know, um, gentrification is happening at, at an extraordinary rate and it's one of the most um, unaffordable cities in the world to, to live in now, um, he's looked at how um, this suburb, Redfern, um, has, you know, been in a, in a way this this site of um, Aboriginal collectivity and strength has been dismantled, um, you know, simply because it's too valuable and too expensive um, for those communities to stay in. Um, so I'll just play you an excerpt of um, of that work. Now, this really high rate of otitis media. Um was critically impacting on their access to education. Um, if you can't hear, you can't learn. A hearing loss between 0 to 3 years of age is when you learn to listen. And if you haven't learnt to attend to particular sounds at that time, you're probably going to always have issues around paying attention. And a lot of young people were misdiagnosed with other problems because of their not hearing well. And the most common um, term for these kids was that they were naughty and they were misbehaving and they weren't listening. And of course, they weren't listening because they could not hear. Mm. So um, what he's done in this work is sort of um, interrupted the conversation at various points with kind of audio treatments that, in a way, um, kind of replicate some of the um, symptoms and effects of um, of hearing loss and hearing distortion. And um, this illness, otitis media, is something that Joel and and, and his mother, um, Juanita Sherwood, ha have both suffered from themselves. Um, I'll move on to um, the second work. You know, before opening it up for. Discussion. Um, so, this is a work by the Manus Recording Project um, Collective, and I suppose it requires a, a, a little bit of um, context on Australia's um, immigration detention um, politics. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure sort of how how aware you guys are. I expect you know not not so 
aware, although um, you know Australia's behaviour in this area is becoming internationally well known and is sort of um, you know threatening to turn the country into a, into an international pariah. Um, it sort of seems like um, the United Nations. Um, is constantly making statements about the brutality um, and inhumaneness of this policy. At the same time, um, Australia's immigration detention policy has been a kind of blueprint for um, other hardline anti-immigration governments around the world who have sort of looked to it um, as an example. Um, but uh, around the sort of um, late 90s, early 2000s, um, a policy... Um, came into being, which was that um, uh, refugees or asylum seekers who arrived by sea, um, rather than being processed in Australia um, and, and sort of have their asylum claims um, uh, um, examined in Australia, um, where possible, um, boats would be intercepted at sea uh, and um, those people would be taken to um, detention centres offshore in um, uh, Nauru and uh, later in Manus Island, which is in Papua New Guinea. Um, and those detention centres um, would be operated by the Australian government, um, but because they are um, in other countries and countries that um, have a very kind of, let's say, weak hand to play in their relationship with Australia because they're often reliant on Australian aid and other kind of political um, support, um, you know, those countries were sort of, in a way, bribed with, with a lot of money to be compliant in this policy. Um, and the people who were sent to these detention centres were outside of the jurisdiction of the Australian courts, so that, you know, therefore have no um, none of the legal rights that someone in Australia would um, be able to access. Um, Manus Island um, in, in PNG um, has had, I think, about 3,000 um, people pass through it, um, all men, it's a, it's a male-only detention centre. Um, there have been numerous controversies. I think 12 people have died um, there in the last five years from uh, medical neglect and also um, uh, one young Iranian guy was, was killed by um, guards, um, two Australian guards and some um, PNG locals. No, no one was sort of ever charged. PNG um, being Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a it's a sort of um, uh, a system that you know is very controversial. Um, it's a kind of race to the bottom in Australian politics, where the two major parties seem to sort of either agree or, um, well, certainly the government um, is ideologically attached to this um, policy, but even the opposition, which is a sort of a, a centre-left opposition, um, is afraid to sort of properly oppose it um, because of a kind of, um, in a way, um, it's, as an election issue, it's very, it's very easy to rouse kind of xenophobia and fear in the Australian public, so it's a sort of risky thing to oppose, um, although the tide may be turning. Um, but um, I'll sort of... There's so much to say about um, the political context of, of Australia's detention uh, system um, from talking about its corruption and the profiteering of companies that have, have literally made hundreds of millions of dollars from contracts um, and, and sort of for whom um, the um, detainees are... Are clients 
um, you know, or, or sort of commodities um, through to the, um, you know, hip hypocrisy of, of um, the Australian government in their kind of, um, you know, participation in the wars that have destabilised certain countries and then their total lack of empathy uh, when the victims of those wars come looking for shelter. So there's so, sort of many, many issues there. But just to say, you know, where this project came from um, was um, the work of um, a, a group called Behind the Wire, um, three... Um, artists in, in uh, Melbourne, Michael Green, who's a journalist focusing on um, migration issues, Andre Dow, who's a, a human rights lawyer, and John Tier, who's a radio maker. Um, and they produced this incredible podcast um, called The Messenger, where um, uh, Michael and a Sudanese um, detainee, um, refugee, um, Aziz Muhammad, who's pictured here um, in Manus with his um, black umbrella, um, Aziz got a smuggled phone um, with some credit on it and Aziz and Michael started exchanging um, WhatsApp voice messages. Um, they didn't have the sort of um, mobile coverage to talk in real time, um, but what they found they were able to do was sort of record short 20, 30-second messages um, which would kind of queue up and then when um, Aziz would, go, would be able to get online, they would all sort of come through. Um, and over the course of um, a couple of, of about 18 months, Aziz and Michael exchanged thousands and thousands of voice messages, which um, Michael then um, composed into a podcast called The Messenger. Um, and one of the amazing things about that is um, it's sort of, uh, you know, one of the things about the this sort of political situation is um, when you hear about it, it's often... Um, like this sort of political argument restated over and over and over with the sort of entrenched positions on either side and there's a, there's a sort of established narrative. But what, what we hear in The Messenger is just more a kind of like day-to-day -day reality of life in detention, um, the boredom, the banality, um, the kind of personal um, experiences and what emerges in the dialogue between these two, you know, is the kind of intimacy of a friendship um, and all of the nuances of it and the kind of, um, you know, I guess, Aziz um, becoming a, a fully-fledged, legible and grievable, um, you know, person and not just a kind of po a political um, pawn. Um, and something amazing happened a, f a couple of weeks ago, which is that Aziz um, was nominated for a major human rights um, award in Geneva, uh, which he went on to win. Um, and the PNG government um, gave him travel documents against the advice of the Australian government uh, and sent him to Geneva, where he's been for the last couple of weeks um, addressing um, members of the United Nations and a number of um, figures sort of in the in international human rights uh, arena... Um, but at the end of those two weeks, and it might, they might be up already, um, he's returned to Manus Island to go back into detention. Um, so, you know, there's sort of an absurdity to this situation that is um, becoming more, more and more pronounced. Um, Aziz was one of the people in this project, along with um, another... I'll go back here. Um, 
an, an, another um, refugee, a, a Kurdish um, poet, intellectual um, writer, um, Beruz Bouchani, who has been filing reports um, for The Guardian for the, for the past um, couple of years and kind of narrating um, as, a, as a sort of embedded journalist who is also detained um, the situation as it's happening around him. And he actually published a book recently um, called no, no Friend But The Mountain, which... Um, uh, was written by text message, one text at a time, to a translator in Sydney who um, had translated it into English and published it. And um, it's an absolutely astonishing sort of combination of like a Kurdish poetic tradition um, and f sort of first-person narration of um, life in detention. Um, and it won an award, the Victorian Literary Award, $130,000. So, again, um, the same country which has held this person in detention for six years without any due process or representation or um, kind of foreseeable outcome has awarded him a $130,000 literary prize. Um, you know, so... <laughs> I mean, the prize came from the Victorian government, which is a state government, which is, in, in a way, a more, a more progressive government than the federal one that has detained him. Um, so I'll just say... I'll, I'll finish in a moment, but I'll just say something about the work in the show. Um, so what the work was, was um, a, a piece called How Are You Today, um, which is the sort of banal question that we sort of ask each other um, when we greet one another. Um, and it's the question that Michael Green, the journalist in Australia would always ask Aziz um, when he'd send him WhatsApp messages and, um, you know, the question is banal but it's just, you have to start somewhere even, no matter how kind of absurd the setting is. Um, and what How Are You Today is, is a, um, a series of recordings uh, made by six men, six detainees in Manus Island um, who over the course of the three-month exhibition um, made 10-minute field recordings um, every day, six days of the week, one day um, resting, um, recordings of precisely 10 minutes long, which were made um, in Manus, um, uploaded to a Dropbox using um, phone credit that, that we provided, um, and also the recordings were made using Zoom recorders that we provided, and then they were played um, into the gallery, usually within 24 hours of being made. So every day in the gallery you would hear um, a 10-minute recording made sort of in the previous 24 hours in Manus. And then o over the um, three months of the, of the exhibition, um, this produced 84 recordings or, or 14 hours um, of recording, which um, is an, a very substantial audio archive, almost like an audio ethnography of um, life in detention. Um, and over the course of the exhibition, the only way to hear those recordings was to um, be in the gallery and sort of listen to them um, and spend that, that sort of time, that 10 minutes, um, sitting and listening. Um, but now that that process is over, we've set up a website called manusrecordingproject.com where they exist as an archive and, and can be listened to. Um, and I think there's many, many, many things to hear in those recordings that haven't properly been heard yet by me or by others because there's the, the 14 hours and there's a lot mm. of information there. And also um, the first recording that came through, um, you know, to give an example, was um, 
made by Aziz, and it was the guys um, listening, watching the World Cup final, you know, because this was like or, or July or August. So it was a recording of sort of football commentary and then people speaking, you know, Farsi and Arabic and sort of occasionally cheering and occasionally sort of just the sound of the crowd. And, you know, the um, one of the things I did worry about when I heard that recording was does this risk sort of underplaying the, the severity of this situation, like undermining the sort of violence of it, the fact that, that a recording like that is so normal every day, you know. Um, but as as things sort of went along and, and um, these recordings started to accumulate and the kind of breadth and diversity of them started to reveal, you know, what, what was interesting is that, you know, many of the recordings were kind of banal, everyday um, sorts of situations um, in, in which, you know, which make you think about this soundscape of incarceration, you know, and, and what does incarceration sound like? And, you know, I think one of the really important things about that is that um, when these guys are asked to speak and activists are asked to speak on their behalf, um, it's always in the sort of project... It's always about producing a narrative or producing an argument. And the strength of a lot of these recordings is that they sort of... They don't produce a narrative. They don't produce an argument. They simply... Um, you know, ten minutes of sound of, you know, um, Kazem at the lawn, you know, doing laundry or or uh, Shamadan cleaning uh, the oven or Baru's smoking a cigarette um, by the fence and listening to the crickets. Um, and so it's not so much about, um, you know listening to these recordings in order to get a snapshot of the argument or to sort of force these guys to restate what has already been stated a million times and which has sort of fatigued them. But it's more about listening with these guys, sort of um, listening to them listening in a way, in this sort of layered way, um, and um, sharing that time and sharing that sort of attention. So I, I might just play an excerpt of, of one... Um, Recording, um, which um, is by um, it's by Samad Abdul, um, and he developed this um, practice about halfway, you know, through the one of the interesting things was over the course of the project, each of the guys started to develop a bit of a practice of how their recordings were sort of composed and structured, um, you know, from initial experimentation to sort of by the seventh or eighth recording a kind of legible, some formal characteristics. And one of the things that Samad does was he would open most of his recordings with an address directly to the listener where he would speak, and then, um, you know, that would be followed by just a, pe a period of sort of ambient sound. Dear brothers, sisters, and dear friends, my name is Shaminda Kanavati. I am a refugee who has been detained on Manus Island under the Australian government's inhuman border protections policy. I have been detained for the last five years with no hope. Today I am making this recording to bring your attention 
about this about the situation on Manus Island and our suffering uh, our suffering under this inhuman policy you may have aware about this situation and what has been happening on Manus Island but I would like to share my burdens with you as I do not have anyone to share my burdens and also I'm pleading all of you guys to stop giving support to our devastating situation and I'm very sure and I believe and I'm strongly believe those people who are listening to this record they are not part of this devastating policy and of course they are standing for injustice and working hard for our freedom and doing everything as much as they can to make sure we are we are still surviving here and get get us out of this place i do not know how to exhibit my gratitude and also I, i have nothing to thank you other than my warm tears dear brothers sisters and my and my dear friends i have lost more than 1500 days in this detention for this time period i could have done something for my future i could have studied or i could have learned new skill for my future but sadly i have done nothing for the last 5 years other than worrying and wasting my time i would like to ask you what is my fault what have i done to detain indefinitely have i done any crime to be detained is it illegal to seek asylum when my life was in danger i was a marketing executive and i aspired to become a veterinarian as i love animals i would have started my studies during these past 5 years this last 5 wasted years i would have been able to contribute to this world rather than dump here for the for the last 5 years but i have been dumped here and myself and my voice and all my talents has been trapped and dumped here there are doctors engineers teachers technicians and qualified young men among us their energy and talents are being wasted here it's a huge loss 
for this world. We would have been able to contribute to the world to bring it a better place. Of course, I would so we would have have been able to contribute Australia's economy to bring it to be the number one nation in the world. But we've been neglected. We've been forgotten. We've been rejected and just just dumped like a waste garbage. I have been all I have been always treated like a like a criminal. And I ask what was my crime to be treated like this. We had no choice but to flee our homeland and our family. In here I am given option when I raised any complaints or request. I am a person that cannot tolerate injustice. Since I come to Manus Island, I always making requests and complaints and talking and standing for the things that's happening on the camps. I have been given some options when I raise my, my complaints. The first op- option is to wait till it's get processed because because that takes a long time. So when you request anything or if you want to get anything, it might take a long time. That's the first option. And I'm told to be patient all the time. And the second important option is that you could really surprise when I said this. I always been given the second option to return back to my country with IM support. That's what they always tell us. What a shameful thing to say to return back to danger where the people escape to protect themselves and seek protection, to avoid the persecution, torture and their life being in danger. I have always indirect, in, indirectly forced and humiliated to return back, back where I come from. If it is safe to return, it, we would have returned back to our countries years ago. We have heard that we will be resettled in PNG and it might take 3 to 5 years the first, the first place when we arrived on Manus Island. We would have written at that time when we hear that. Because we have no choice. We cannot return to our countries. Those people who come to Manus and, and, and asylum on Australia all of all of us being gone through with persecution, torture and discriminations and our life was being in danger so that's why we escaped and still we are here 
why should I been trapped here? If it's safe, I would have returned to my country. Why should I? Why should I trap here? We have a families. We are also a human being, same like you. Why don't you? Why don't you understand this? Imagine when someone's father or mother or anyone is in his family passed away. He can't even attend to his, the funeral. How do you feel when he can't give his last respect to his mother or father who raised, who has raised him, raised them with the love and good morals? We have always been humiliated by the workers in this camp who would probably hurt us and they would always say you are having this food and facilities from my tax some days i feel mentally unwell when i heard about this when i hear this we all come from a good respected families we have been brought up with decency so it sort of it just cuts off at 10 minutes um, arbitrarily and a lot of the recordings um, do that and it was sort of quite a, a jarring um, decision to make but we wanted to sort of um, you know and in consultation with the guys um, we sort of agreed that there would be this uniform duration of each recording um, and that the request to the to the listener in the gallery would be to spend that 10 minutes and to sort of know that that 10 minutes was was the time. So, mm. yeah, apologies if that was a sort of very, you know, um, upsetting thing to listen to. I probably, you know, should have um, mentioned that in advance. But, um, you know, it is a, a quite an upsetting situation mm. and, you know... Um, and that recording, yeah, in, in which Shamadan is sort of um, speaking directly to a, to a listener and describing his um, situation is sort of what one of a number of recordings that were sort of in that modality a, alongside many others that were, you know, com completely different that were sort of largely atmospheric or environmental or, you know. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, it, it, yeah. yeah, sure. No, I mean, it just strikes yeah. me as incredibly moving. Um, moving is not the right word. Powerful recording. Um, it, as I was listening, I was thinking that, you know, when we started this conversation with Georgina about this, initially about this idea of sound histories, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the things we talked about was, um, was erasure, the erasure of women, the erasure of people of colour from sound and music histories and how that erasure creates a narrative and that narrative is perpetuated. And I was thinking when I was listening to that, that the flip side of erasure in some part is witness and paying witness, and that, that for me there seems to be a very strong element in these works of paying witness to histories that would otherwise be erased mm. and giving space for those sonic uh, presences or those, the, those listening histories to be, to be part of a wider narrative. Was that, can that notion of witness, bearing witness, how does that sit within this project? Yeah, really strongly, and, and I, I guess, um, you know, the term... Um, Ear witnessing was was really important to this project. I mean, not least because, um, you know, at its heart, this project is, um, you know, situated between law and sound and activism, um, and um, 
you know, ear witness, ear witnessing is a, is a legal term and analogous to eyewitnessing. And, um, you know, generally it, it refers to um, someone who gives a kind of um, acoustic testimony but based on their, their memory of sort of um, what they've heard. Um, so it, it's, um, you know, testimony about a sound that no, no longer exists um, but is kind of being referred to. And I think that's also the way that, you know, Amari Schaefer used ear witnessing in mm. relation to sort of soundscape studies was um, kind of pe people um, describing soundscapes that um, no longer exist um, but ha having sort of um, witnessed them. Um, you know, in the, in the case of, um, you know, these two works, Joel Spring's work and this um, Manus work, which was, you know, a collaboration for, of, of nine people, I think um, the idea of ear witnessing is something that strongly brings them together. I mean, obviously in Joel's work it's, it's very literal because we're l looking at an, at an inner ear um, as people speak, so we're kind of literally ear, ear witnessing in a, in a sense. Um, <coughs> In the Manus work, um, these men are kind of bearing witness to their own um, experience. Um, and I, I suppose the recording device um, is... Oh, and, you know, um, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what people sort of think mm -hmm. about this because it's not, it's not something I'm sort of totally resolved on. But, you know, I think there are m multiple levels of listening <coughs> going on in this work. There's... Um, the listening of the recording device, which is sometimes like a fly on the wall, um, just capturing things that are happening that are kind of somewhat uh, ambivalent to it. Um, there's the listening of um, the men themselves, you know, that the part of, us, you know, because the instructions we gave were to just um, record, um, you know, anything or, no or nothing much at all mm. um, and to really just... Um, use the opportunity of making the recording as an as an experimental one and a, a sort of ref, reflective one. I'm not sure whether the guys ever listened back to the recordings that they made, or you know. Um, so in a way, um, for them, the experience of the recording was of making it. You know, so it was the experience itself. The recorder was sort of there, and then the listening that happened in the gallery. Um, was a kind of secondary one to the recording, but it's also you're listening to the recording, but you're also listening with these guys as as they're listening. So, in terms of witnessing, yeah, I think um, this there's 14 hours of this archive. Um, it it exists. It's sort of um, you know I, I hope it's just a document um, that along with you know, many other documents is um, instrumental in some way or makes some kind of contribution to ending this um, unjust situation. And I, I sort of see it as part of a collective effort that, you know, many, many people are making to, um, you know, um, forge connections between these um, people held in detention and people um, in Australia, um, which are personal connections, um, which are not mediated by the bad politics that have sort of been set up between us. And, you know, going back to that original Blackstone definition of the wall, you know, which is the threshold, um, the barrier 
that you sort of have to listen across. You know, I sort of think of this um, project as, li as listening across a, bo a border um, which has been sort of set up to, set to separate people, um, to offshore them. Um, and this is sort of a form of listening that transgresses that, but, you know, and ho hopefully in a productive way. We've got a microphone at the back here. If anyone has questions or comments or would like to join in, uh, we're, we started slightly late, so we're going to keep running a little bit over time, so if you feel you have to leave, please do. But I just wondered if anyone would like to, uh, yeah, say anything. Excellent question. Oh, sure. Um, sure. Will you just wait for the microphone so we can all hear you? Sorry. Hello. Um, hi. Um, hi. Did these people, the detainees, did they um, receive any um, response to their recordings? Or is it just one-sided, like they're voicing? Um, yeah, so um, the structure um, that was put in place to produce the work was um, that there were three um, um, uh, guys in Melbourne um, and six detainees on Manus working together and each of the guys in Melbourne worked with two um, of the men on Manus and um, helped make sure that the works kind of arrived and were sort of ten minutes long and kind of got into the sort of system to be streamed into the gallery and as part of that process um, there was, you know, di dialogue about um, the works, uh, about the recordings um, and, and some feedback, but it was very um, minimal in a way. Like, the emphasis was on um, producing the recordings and bringing them um, into the space, um, not on sort of e editing or discussing them too much because there was um, one recording every day for three months. So, um, you know, the, la the labour involved was, in a way, qu quite high, so... Yeah. yeah, thanks. That's OK. There's another one at the end of this row. We can just pass the... Thanks. Yes. Thanks so much, Joel. Um, really fantastic to get some insight into the project. Um, I mean, I followed it from a, from a distance and, and really was very curious and uh, find it yeah, very exciting. So um, great to um, understand a bit more. And uh, I was only really just kind of curious. I mean, you already point to it a little bit with this project around the notion of the ear witness. Mm -hmm. But of course, um, you're also presenting us uh, with the making of an exhibition. And I was very curious how you curated uh, our listening uh, within that exhibition. I mean, I can imagine this was something you were very much reflecting upon as visitors, how we were activated as listeners and if there were different kinds of situations or how we were situated within that acoustic mm. space, mm. Uh, how as listeners we were performing uh, within that exhibition. I wonder if, if you might say something towards that. Yeah. Um, well, it was very far from ideal um, because, of course, I was working with an institution, <laughs> a, a museum, um, who were not you know, set up for... for this kind of purpose, um, and it was a, um, a low-budget show. So, you know, the original um, exhibition design that I had was for seven or eight works, and each one would have their own sort of discrete, soundproofed booth, like sort of seven anechoic chambers 
with a kind of like creepy Bruce Nauman style corridor around the outside. Um, and you would kind of enter into each chamber and kind of experience the works discreetly. I abandoned that idea because it was too expensive and I, I sort of wasn't convinced it would work anyway. Um, and kind of arrived at a, a, an idea of the exhibition in, in which I suppose um, the conditions of, of eavesdropping are sort of reproduced in the gallery. Um, there's a lot of leakage and, and overhearing that happens between the works. There are kind of correspondences, um, you know, a, a, as works sort of insist up, upon other spaces and, and become audible, you know, where you, you wouldn't expect them. Um, there are two works... Um, by Samson Young, uh, Muted Chorus, and Lawrence Abu Hamdan, um, Sadnaya, which both deal with whispering as a kind of modality, as a sort of form of encryption or as a way of kind of anonymising the voice. And, and those two works were kind of in, in dialogue across different spaces as these whispering sounds um, traversed the gallery. Um, Susan Shukley um, produced a series of works to do with um, found answering machine tapes, which were kind of headphone-based but um, had single-cup headphones so that you would sort of listen to the work in one ear with, with the other ear still kind of open to the environment. Um, and, and again, uh, uh, sort of the artists were all very um, open to this idea that um, all of the works would kind of resonate in, in a shared space. Um, the one aspect of this Manus work was that because it changed every day, um, you never knew whether it was going to be extremely loud or very or very soft or what the dynamics would be, and that, and that presented a challenge because sometimes it overpowered the other works and other times it was barely audible um, because of its quietness. Um, and one of the things that um, I did do um, was that in one of the spaces... Um, of the exhibition, which took place across three three rooms, um, was I developed a system in which um, four works um, were presented in a sequence rather than simultaneously, um, and we had a, a eight channel sort of audio set up with four closed speakers and four external speakers and multiple video projectors and the didactics projected and used uh, a kind of complex sort of playlist to deliver the works one after the other so that each could in turn fully occupy the gallery. Um, but it wasn't so much like a playlist because the transitions between each work were transitions of orientation and sort of compression and expansion as um, the sort of speakers and, um, you know, projections kind of moved around the room. So um, that also introduced... A kind of, um, you know, I suppose, um, a a conversation between the works that was um, kind of revealed itself over time, and b um, an experience for the listener or for the visitor to the show, where um, in order to really understand the works, you, you had to spend a significant amount of time at the show, um, and you weren't sort of, let's say, tempted. Um, by ducking off into the other room to sort of see what was um, happening there whilst the work that you were with was sort of still unfolding. So, yeah, I mean, but as you know, um, curating an exhibition of, of sound and listening works in a, in a museum context is, um, you know, a, a very challenging thing to do. And there, there are a lot of curatorial 
approaches and methodologies that people have tried, and don't think any of them are sort of like surefire sort of so solutions. But um, you know, I, I certainly had an agenda to experiment with the curatorial approach and try, try to find sort of unconventional ways of doing that. Since the mic is here, I thought we might as well grab it sure. and jump in. Thank you so much for a very powerful, um, emphatic, but also quite burdening talk. I feel quite burdened, but I suppose that's part of it, and that's mm. part of kind of the interaction. I think that's inevitable and, and possibly desired. I have loads of points um, that I'd, I'd love to discuss, but maybe I just pull out the one thing that kind of I really always struggle with because as an as artworks and as artworks kind of mediated through your presentation which was extremely mm. eloquent and clear i i get information i get introduced to something i maybe vaguely know but much clearer much better um and then what do i do what do i do and in the beginning the kind of in relation to the 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 standard slogan you have on the website the question is how how to get to the doing, mm, you know, mm, as, a, as a kind of how to get to the doing. And I think art is, of course, a form of doing. Mm, and that talking is a form of doing. Mm, um, is there a way to get to the doing now, um, to the undoing of, of, of this um, um, detention centre? And what do you think is art's role in it beyond, as you mentioned, maybe the pedagogical? Mm. awareness making is there another role or is there not another role mm. um, I mean I, f I find it very hard to answer those questions of course because you know they're very good questions um, and I, I suppose um, you know as cultural workers you know um, who um, have a political agenda um, but are also you know producing an aesthetic experience, it's quite hard to sort of disentangle those things and sort of work out where one begins and, and the other ends. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things um, about this show is it, it's, a, it's a sort of hyper-articulate show and it's, that's not um, because of me, it's because of the artists, you, you know, like every work in the show um, comes with a kind of extremely complex explanation, political context, social context. And so, um, you know, artists like Susan Shupley and Lawrence Abu Hamdan, you know, sort of essayists in, in certain ways, as well as sort of producing a kind of effective um, experience. So, um, it, in some ways, um, the show is, you know, the discursive... Part of it is very is very heavy. Um, in terms of um, what does it do? I mean, I think, um, and what, what I hope it does is um, it sort of um, it's it becomes a contribution to a kind of collective po political movement of um, many works um, that operate you know, side by side um, to, um, you know, with a shared goal of bringing about political and social changes that, that we want to see. And, um, you know, I, I guess um, 
why, for instance, Seth's idea of shallow listening, you know, re resonated with me. Um, it's because, you know, I, I think about all of the things that these, all of the things that these works touch and all the things that are touched by them and all of the sort of other contexts that they um, attach to. And um, I think you can't experience these works without, you know, also thinking about um, other sites of action and, you know, pedagogy and protest. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but, um, you know, one thing to say maybe in relation to that is um, this Manus work um, was presented both in the um, museum the, at the University of Melbourne um, and also in the foyer area of the Melbourne Law School. Um, so that was an interesting opportunity to kind of see how these two radically different spaces, one a space you know, for art and the other a space for, let's say, um, you know, I was going to say justice, but more, you know, let's say juridical kind of scholarship, um, how the work was um, differently kind of filtered or kind of understood in those two spaces. Um, and, you know, how the, di the different kind of attitudes of listening that would be produced by those two spaces was, was a really interesting comparison. And maybe, you know, through things like that, you sort of can start to see maybe um, what some of the practical implications of the works might be. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean to make you responsible because I actually do no. think that art has has a doing mm. and has a has a communication function. I suppose I'm sort of talking about my own sort of sense of like, ohmächtigkeit. You know, when you just feel that, that you you yourself can't do anything, but that actually, yep. it, I mean, I sort of I did. It was interesting. You said the law society because I felt in the least it is building a file for future prosecution. Yes. I mean, you know, it, it is a witness, it is a testimony that gets gathered up and yep. and is used, and maybe that is an interesting way in which the eavesdropping is actually thrown back at governments and can be used in the future, because we are listening into them as well in a very different way than we, we would have maybe used, so we can rewire the microphones too. And, and, and I think that maybe can be quite empowering, but thank you very much. You're welcome, yeah. I think the production of, of evidence and the production of an archive that sort of um, speaks to, um, you know, what has happened there, yeah, I, I agree that that's, that's an important part of it, yeah. Thank you. I think we're going to draw this to a close. Okay. There's so much more to talk about, I think, and uh, so many issues, I think, that, that's been raised in this. Time marches on, <laughs> as ever. It doesn't stop for us. So I think, uh, thank you for now, Joel. Thank you to Radio Oracle. Thank you to Bogum Bibliotech. And thank you to you. Thank you, Joel. And thank you so much for listening with us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. That will help us get the word out to more people about Boreale Samtala. And for those of you who don't know, Samtala means conversation in Norwegian. Hada!